Good afternoon, everybody, or good evening, whatever it might happen to be. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 11 of Till We Have Faces, and tonight we're actually going to do it. Tonight we're going to finish discussing Chapter 15. Chapter 15 is a really important moment, um, this moment of revelation. And so the, uh, the benefit of having taken so long <clears throat> to get through chapter 15, is that um, I think we may get to both the uh, apocalypse and to, you know, to the unveiling and the veiling in the same session, which would be uh, pretty cool. Um, but um, anyway, let's... Um, oh, so uh, what, I was going to say let's jump in. One thing before we jump in. Um, I wanted to, to just catch you guys up if you didn't catch the announcement this past weekend had a big announcement of a big new program that we have launched at Signum and I want to make sure that you know about it because it's pretty awesome and that is the Signum Collaboratory you can go to collaboratory.signumuniversity.org um, and what this is is both a way for us to get you awesome fantasy and academic content and also for you to participate in a really awesome creative community. So very briefly, because I don't want to go over the whole thing again, um, but what you get is we have the Signum Press and the Signum Studios are working on uh, uh, video series and books that are being written. And you can be, not only can you get access to those materials by subscribing to the collaboratory, that's what this is here in our circulation library. So you can see, for instance, uh, Mike Drought's amazing line-by-line -line audio commentary of, uh, on Beowulf, right? He's been doing Exploring Beowulf with these 31 uh, lectures line-by-line -line through the poem. So far, he's got a few more left. Uh, and then uh, these 10 or 11 other topic lectures as well. So far, he has several more that he's working on for that as well. So you can not only be getting things like this as they come out, or my book, here's my Exploring the Lord of the Rings Volume 1 book, and the six chapters I have completed so far. Um, so you can see that in, you can listen to my audiobook uh, version of it, or you can uh, see the text version, either way. Um, but um, anyway, so... So there's there's this right there's where you can get you can get this content as I say our video series are going to be uh, released this way. We've also released a new thing, uh, a new series of things which is called Fan Tracks, uh, which Signum Studio is producing. Fan Tracks are audio commentary tracks that you can play along with movies and TV shows, so that you can get audio commentary uh, from uh, uh, fun folks. Well, and me. So, like, for instance, you can listen, you can watch the Rankin-Bass uh, Hobbit, animated Hobbit, um, and listen to the audio track from me and New Better Do Better from TikTok. Um, I had an awesome time recording uh, that commentary track uh, with him. Uh, so anyway, so that's, uh, this is just the stuff that's been released, but there's much more coming. Because in addition to getting this stuff, it's not just a content subscription. 
In addition, you also get to be in behind the scenes. These are our project rooms where um, our books and video projects are in development, and you will get to be seeing drafts and commenting on drafts and giving feedback. There are, there are going to be times there's a bunch of things that we're planning in some of these sessions that I'm a part of where we're going to be asking for suggestions and feedback and, and uh, people to have the opportunity to, um, to, to respond and to help shape these projects as they're moving forward. Um, again, we want this to be more than just an opportunity for people to passively consume content that they're interested in. You can do that too, um, but also to be to choose, uh, you know, one one or two or three uh, or more of these project rooms and be a part of them. Right? Actually contribute to the discussion. Be in the room where it happens. Um, it's. Um, it's uh, it's pretty cool. So and there are you know other options are creator circles where you can have monthly meetings um, with your uh, with you know your the author or video producer of your choice, uh, so you can keep up with their projects and what's going on with them. Um, we have our production halls where we have a whole bunch of like other um, sort of often smaller uh, or more experimental things like conference presentations, really cool conference presentations um, that have uh, uh, that you might not have uh, attended. You, you might not have been to um, uh, works of short fiction, works of poetry, work, uh, academic essays, all these kinds of things are being, uh, are, they're being, they're being workshopped and they're being, you know, you have the opportunity to read them and respond to them here, but you also, and they'll also get pushed through into the library when they're completed. So anyway, this is the new big thing, the Signum Collaboratory, um, a really fun experiment that we're doing in, again, this sort of new approach to both both the creation and the delivery of content in which we want to invite our community to be a part and not just to be, uh, you know, to, to, to give you the opportunity to be more than a, than a, than a passive, uh, a passive consumer of content. So that's, that's, um, that's the new thing, the Signum Collaboratory. Um, as I say, I encourage you to look it out, consider subscribing, collaboratory.signumuniversity.org. It's going to be a huge amount of fun. All right. Let's get back to Till We Have Faces, which is also fun, though a different sort of quality of fun as these parts of the book that we've been in the middle of are extremely painful. Um, but um, anyway, let's, um, let's get back into things. So remember that... After she had her conversation, after she ended her conversation with Psyche hor so horribly, and Psyche agreed that she would take the lamp. Um, and, uh, you know, look at her husband's face in the dark. During the time of waiting, during the hours between when they parted and when the lamp is lit the first time and hidden again, Right. And then, you know, shows up the second time, which is when Psyche is uh, is is revealing her husband's face. Um, between that time, <clears throat> we were looking at the passages in which Orwa was describing the various kind of dreams and fantasies that she was having. A lot of sort of self-pitying fantasies, a lot of self-aggrandizing fantasies in which she was imagining uh, in part one of the things she was imagining was things set right, things returning, the, the relationship between her and Psyche returning back to what it was before. 
Um, and we could see a lot about um, uh, Orowal and sort of where she was um, uh, there. This we're going to pick up tonight with what happens <clears throat> after the god is revealed. First, we have the descript the horrible, disastrous destruction of the landscape, right? The huge storm and the uh, landslide and everything else. <clears throat> the great voice, which rose up from somewhere close to the light, went through my whole body in such a swift wave of terror that it blotted out even the pain in my arm. It was no ugly sound. Even in its implacable sternness, it was golden. My terror was the salute that mortal flesh gives to immortal things. And after, barely after, the strong soaring of its incomprehensible speech came the sound of weeping. I think, if those old words have a meaning, my heart broke then. But neither the immortal sound nor the tears of her who wept lasted for more than two heartbeats. Heartbeats, I say, but I think my heart did not beat till they were over. A great flash laid the valley bare to my eyes. Then it thundered, as if the sky broke in two, straight above my head. Lightnings, thick following one another, pricked the valley, left, right, near and far, everywhere. Each flash showed falling trees. The imagined pillars of Psyche's house were going down. They seemed to fall silently, for the thunder hid their crashing. But there was another noise it could not hide. Somewhere away on my left, the walls of the mountain itself were breaking. I saw, or thought I saw, fragments of rock hurled about and striking on other rocks and rising into the air again like a child's ball that bounces. The river rose so quickly that I was overtaken by its rush before I could stumble back from it, wet to my middle. But that made little odds, for with the storm there had come a tyrannous pelting rain. Hair and clothes were already a mere sponge. Um... Okay, um, that first paragraph. Um, notice, keep in mind that here, Orowal is merely overhearing, right? Um, what is happening is the conversation between the god and Psyche. We hear the gods where she hears the gods where she hears the sound of the gods' words, the great voice, but we don't see any record of what the gods said. Um, it doesn't sound... It's possible, of course, that geriatric Orowal is simply not telling us what the words were here, but I don't think so because of the way that she describes it. Um, she describes her reaction to the voice. She heard the voice. Um, but she talks about the sound of it, right? And the effect that the sound has on her. Um, I don't think that the words that are being directed at Psyche here are actually overheard um, uh, by Orowal here, as far as I can tell. Um, but um, But it's important to remember this is there are two different kind of moments, right? Two different occasions here. Um, Orowal's memories of this night, of this catastrophe here, um, 
are in these two parts. First, this. This is the interaction with Psyche, that she is merely overhearing. She's just near it, right? Remember, she's on the other side of the river, though she was up close to the river because she was hoping, she was waiting for Psyche to come to her across the river. Um, but she's still, she's outside the valley. Um, so she is, remember that language about the the gap that was opening between them. Remember all that stuff about mortality and immortality that we got before. And we got it in two ways, you'll recall. First, we got it from Psyche herself. It was the centerpiece, or not the centerpiece, it was the dominant theme of Psyche's own story when she told the story of her sacrifice and how she was found and how she was freed by the god of the west wind and carried to her new palace and then brought in by these other spirits whom she couldn't see but whose hands she could feel and then her husband, right? Um, And her own reaction to that, her sense of shame, remember shame not at being naked, but shame at, because uh, you were talking about being bathed and stuff, right? Not at being naked, but just at being mortal, right? Um, so, and you will also recall Orwell's, I was about to say antipathy, but that seems a too gentle word to describe it, right? Orwell's, um disgust anger in response to that kind of talk, right? She did not like even hearing about that. So I said there were two ways in which this idea of like the mortal and the immortal had been coming up for us before that. That's the one, right? Um, uh, Psyche's depiction of that in Orwell's resistance to it. But then I'm thinking also of Orwell's uh, despairing exclamation um, that Psyche is so far away from her that she feels that the two of them are on, you know, two different, in two different worlds and that those worlds are going, but then then a gulf has opened up between them. Um, And you'll remember in the context of that, those observations, those perceptions that Orowal was having, the perceptions that suggested that Psyche was in fact becoming divine that she was taller, that she was stronger, that she was bright face, right? That she was radiant like the goddess uh, uh, Aphrodite in the story of Anchises, right? Um, as we um, as we heard from the fox earlier on. Um, and yet she was trying to resist that idea. And she was, when she perceived it, reacting with that, with that despair, right? Um... So, I think it's important to remember all those things because those things are going to become very, very important here. First, this sense of distance. She is aware of what happens in the valley. Not just the terrible destruction of the valley, but she's aware of the exchange between the god of the mountain and Psyche. The great voice of implacable sternness, golden implacable sternness on the one hand and the sound of weeping on the other hand. Right. Um, And so it's it's I don't even know how to describe it. 
it's complicated, right? Because on the one hand, we've seen Orwell has been distant from this, right? There's been Psyche's world, and she has wanted to invite Orwell into it, but Orwell refused, right? That's why she can't see it. Even when she saw it, she rejects it, right? Um, Orwell, Psyche wants to invite her over. She brings her over across the river. Orwell doesn't want to go. Orwell is now back on the other side of the river, and she's separate from where Psyche and the god of the mountain are. But at the same time, over there, things are splitting apart. Psyche, who had been brought into and welcomed into this divine realm on top of the mountain, this glorious, um, you know, rich garden valley at the top of the, uh, of the mountain, um, has now been destroyed. She has been driven out. So now the, more, the, the one place where mortality and immortality where human, the human and the divine were in fact coming together, had in fact been joined in marriage, right, with Psyche and the god, now there is a split, right? Now there is a divide, and now Psyche is being pushed aside. And again, remembering that despairing cry of Orwell, that sense of gap between them, um, now Psyche apparently is experiencing that gap between her and her husband. Hence, the sound of weeping. And yet, the worst part is that contrary to all of Orwell's fantasies, Psyche's separation from her husband, her um, banishment back into the world of mortality and out of the immortal world into which she had been welcomed, does not bring Psyche back to Orwell, but divides the two of them um, at an even greater and more permanent distance. Right? Um, yes. Yes. Um, yeah, it is really terrible, isn't it, Jackie? Um, yes. Um... Okay. Notice at the same time, in the midst of all of this, Orwell also describes her response to hearing the voice. Um, on the one hand, she's not talking to her. She is distant from this. She's just in. She's just overhearing. But she responds to the sound. The voice goes through her whole body in a swift wave of terror, right? Such a swift wave of terror that it blotted out even the pain in my arm. Um, that pain, which would seem a, a pretty firm anchor to mortality, right? To the mortal world, is just overwhelmed by this, I was about to say direct encounter with the divine, but it isn't yet direct Right? It's still indirect. She's still overhearing. It's not even aiming at her. Right? Um, and, that, <clears throat> and that description uh, 
it was no ugly sound. Like she's like, why were you, why were you so terrified? Right. She's like, don't, don't picture a hideous sound. It's not like it didn't, it didn't fill me with terror that way, or it didn't fill me with that kind of terror. Right. Even in its implacable sternness, it was golden. Um, Golden. Implacable. Notice one thing that those two things have in common. Implacable and golden is this idea of unchangingness, right? Gold is beautiful and it is lustrous and it does not tarnish or fade, right? Um, But it's also golden in the sense of being beautiful. And it's also golden, I think, in the sense of being heavy, right? Heavy and bright and beautiful and unchanging and inorganic, right? Like alien, not, this is not a warm, friendly voice, right? A voice, a golden voice of implacable sternness, and yet not ugly, right? Not ugly, not bad. My terror was the salute that mortal flesh gives to immortal things. What is happening here is that Orwal is finally encountering, beyond any self-deception, encountering the god, encountering the divine. You will recall she's been fighting against this the whole time. Um, In noted contrast to the fox, she was willing to entertain the idea, what if... What if the god is really there, right? The fox is um, committed to a worldview which excludes the possibility, right, of of uh, of psyche marrying a god, right? Um, even though he is rather unfaithful to that worldview in all of the poetry that he loves, right? The fox, I mean. But still, he is committed to that idea and won't consider it. As we could see in her frustration, um, Orwell's frustration, during their conversation together, um, when she returned after her first conversation on the mountain with Psyche. Um, She was never just willing to discount it like he was. Bardia did not discount the existence of the gods, took that absolutely for granted, right? but clearly thought it equally impossible that the gods could be something that you could... You know, the gods are just scary and dangerous, and you just want to avoid their attention as much as possible. That's Bardia's philosophy, right? Um, That the gods... The gods exist, sure, but that they could be beautiful, loving, that marriage with them could be a blessed thing. Um, Bardia does not seem to entertain that as a possibility either. And again, Orwal kind of could, right? She could see that. The problem was she hated it. She rejected it. She wanted it not to be. Not because... She couldn't believe it, 
not because she didn't believe it, but because she chose not to, because she didn't want to, um, because she was jealous of Psyche, because she was envious of her new relationship with her husband, because she was having, as we talked about at the end last time, um, having all of these very narcissistic pattern um, thoughts and then behaviors, right? Um, increasingly abusive behaviors um, to attempt to bully Psyche back into obedience to try to force her um, somehow back into the relationship that they had before, which is always impossible and which, of course, has the... Um, horribly predictive, predictable result of driving Psyche completely away. Um, the destruction of the valley. Again, one of the things that we can see here is Orwell's confrontation with the unquestionable... Like, there can be, surely... There can be for Orwell no more doubt, no more effective self-deception, whether or not the god was really there or behind this, right? Um, what is happening here, what she is seeing in the destruction of this valley, this is not normal, <laughs> right? This is, uh, this is not, um, uh, this is not just a natural phenomenon. But notice the one thing, um, notice the one thing in the middle, right? Um, lightnings thick following one another pricked the valley left, right, near and far, everywhere. Each flash showed falling trees. The imagined pillars of Psyche's house were going down. Notice that? That one little word thrown in there, right? Imagined. The imagined pillars of Psyche's house were going down. Like even in this moment, she is still stubbornly holding on to the idea that it is not, in fact, Psyche's house, which was Psyche's house because it's the house of the god, right? The god is destroying his house that he brought Psyche into um, and casting her out of it. And I think here, in the midst of all of this, I think that that word imagined, that word imagined floats through like a, 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 like a little scrap of wood to cling on to. Uh, at sea, right? I think that it's certainly true, Morgul Hamster, that she doesn't want to believe. Um, she doesn't want to believe, but I think her not wanting to believe here is almost... Uh, she wants to believe just as hard, perhaps harder, uh, but now for different reasons. There's something, I think, self-protective in that idea. Um, if she allows herself to come to the obvious conclusion that Psyche was right all along um, 
and that her house was real, she has to confront the fullness of what she's done to Psyche. And the fact that she really did know it all along. Right. Um, yeah, I... Um, I st I think that it's it's, it's oh a couple of people were asking um, about sort of different ways to read imagined, um, yeah no I I think it's well the imagined pillars um, notice she's just called them trees each flash showed falling trees the imagined pillars of Psyche's house. Um, that's why I think she's clinging, Orwell is clinging here to her own fantasy that there was nothing there but trees. Um, she saw trees where Psyche said there were pillars of the house, right? They were sitting on a rock, a flat rock, where she said, where Psyche said they were sitting on the steps of her house, right? Um, so it does seem to me that she is still characterizing the trees of the valley as the imagined pillars of Psyche's house, though she knows like, she knows that they're trees. Right. Um, but again, that's the only um, uh, that one word, really, kind of floats in the middle of this paragraph, which otherwise is just um, raw confrontation with the unleashed power um, the unleashed power of the god but beaten and blinded though I was I took these things for a good sign they showed so it seemed to me that I was right Psyche had roused some dreadful thing and these were its ragings it had waked. She had not hidden her light soon enough, or else, yes, that was most likely. It had only feigned to be sleeping. It might be a thing that never needed sleep. It might, no doubt, destroy both her and me, but she would know. She would at worst die undeceived, disenchanted, reconciled to me. Even now we might escape. Failing that, we could die together. I rose up, bent double under the battery of the rain, to cross the stream. I believe I could never have crossed it, the deep, foaming death race it had now become, even if I had been left free to try. I was not left free. There came as if it... There came as if... Yes, there came as if it were a lightning that endured. That is, the look of it was the look of lightning, pale, dazzling, without warmth or comfort, showing each smallest thing with fierce distinctness. But it did not go away. This great light stood over me as still as a candle burning in a curtained and shuttered room. In the center of the light was something like a man. It is strange that I cannot tell you its size. Its face was far above me, yet memory does not show the shape as a giant's, and I do not know whether it stood or seemed to stand on the far side of the water or on the water itself. Emily, that is... Uh... Uh, that is a hard saying, but 
I, I agree. Um, Orwell's happiness has always been more important to her than Psyche's. Yeah. Let's focus on the first paragraph first. Um, notice again here, the first thing Orwell does now is she does her interpretation, right? She does her interpretation. She twists this to her own, own comfort. I took these things for a good sign. It's not good that, you know, necessarily, intrinsically a good thing that we've made the god furious at us, but now the apocalypse has happened. He has been revealed. He's been unveiled. Um, she always knew she always knew, right? I mean, and I, I love this, like, that I was right. Right about what? Like, exactly about what? Right? Um, she's had so many conflicting thoughts and interpretations here. Um, but, um, anyway, this uh, triumph that she briefly feels, triumph in Psyche's misery, right? Psyche is, is no matter what has happened, and remember, she hasn't heard it, she hasn't seen it directly, whatever has happened has ended in Psyche's misery. Orwell's own heart broke when she heard Psyche, Psyche's tears, right? Um, she knows Psyche is now miserable, whether it was, as she describes here, um, that uh, Psyche had roused some dreadful thing and these were its ragings. If Psyche's illusions about her divine husband have now been shattered and she has discovered that he is in fact a raging brute. Well, that's going to be painful, right? But it's best for her. Right. Remember back to the uh, pulling the thorn out of her hand, right? Kind of situation. Um, but it's more than that, right? It is. She kept Orwell kept clinging to that metaphor, um, to that analogy, of the the pulling the thorn out of her hand. Um, but the difference is, you are genuinely thinking of the health and happiness of the other person, right? Here, she doesn't go on... She, If she had gone on, like, maybe, if she had gone on to say that... Um, uh, it might no doubt destroy both her and me, but she would know. I mean, I guess there's a little bit. She would die at worst, undeceived, disenchanted, reconciled to me. But see, there's the problem. By the end of that sentence, it all comes back around to her. Right? Um, remember the, uh, the tyrannous temptation that she resisted so strongly. That temptation to let Psyche be happy. But she rejected it as a temptation. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, she governed it. She governed it. Yes, Curious Chance, you're right. That was an important word. 
she governed that temptation. Um, yes. Um, yes. Now, Doc, you're right. This is... Um, that he does appear to be a cruel, raging brute. Um, the character, the characterization of the brute doesn't seem to be wholly wrong, right? Um, yes, yes. Um, Psyche hoped, believed that he would forgive her. That does not seem to have happened. She said she was only going through with it because she believed that her husband could not possibly be as cruel as Orwell. Right? And we don't know. All I will say, there, there are two things. Um, there are two things I would say about this. And this is hard. This is very hard. This is where the first-person narrative frame of this book is particularly demanding on us. We want to know what happens with Psyche, right? But we're not going to learn exactly. We're not going to get the rest of Psyche's story from here. We're going to get Orwell's story from here. There will be things that we will learn about Psyche's story as we get the rest of Orwell's story. Um, but I would urge you to be cautious about... So, like, for instance, some of you are talking about, um, you know, the god leaving her. Does he? Does he abandon her? We don't know. We don't know what is going to happen to her. We don't know... Which, we have to be careful to only take the story that we're given and not fill in the others. And this is one of the things that Lewis does in this book, which is so painful. There are many painful things in this book. But if we want to know, if we're desperate to know, but, but what's Psyche? What happened with Psyche? What was Psyche's experience of this evening? What did he say to her? What did he say to her? And what does she experience now and tomorrow and next week? Um, what did he say and what is she doing? We don't know, right? But remember, neither does Orwell. And Orwell is going to spend the rest of her life wondering. And Lewis is going to leave us in that same position for, in, you know, in his defense, Orwell's there for decades, right? We're only going to be there for about five, six chapters, right? Um, but, um, uh, I would just urge you to be careful about leaping to conclusions about the God or about Psyche or about their relationship, because we don't know. Orwell doesn't know. And she is our frame, right? And Lewis is going to force us through his choice of her first-person frame, force us to come to an understanding of what happened between Psyche and the god only through Orwell's experience. He's going to make us tread a similar path to Orwell 
and hers is not going to be a direct path. So again, just um, just be cautious, right? Just be cautious about that. Um, it's very hard not to speculate, but I'd encourage you not to. I'd encourage you not to because I think it's important that we're not told those things. Um, uh, anyway, okay. But again, we see, of course, Orawal still with her narcissistic obsession on herself. Um, if so long as Psyche could be reconciled to me before her death, I don't so much mind her dying, right? Um, and she runs to cross the stream. The stream, of course, being the boundary between the human world and the divine world. The house of the god, which has just been destroyed. To Orawal, it has been, to this point, the boundary, the barrier between her and Psyche. They were on opposite sides of the bank, which was getting wider and wider apart in Orawal's imagination. Right. Now, that gap has widened in truth, right? As the river has become a deep, foaming death race, which she could not possibly have crossed. Um, and by the way, this is once again... Uh, sorry, I feel guilty about it, but I'll do it anyway. I feel guilty about referring back to the Pearl poem after I said I wasn't going to talk in detail about the Pearl poem, so I'm going to refer again to that poem I didn't tell you much about. But... Um, uh, you'll remember that I said in the Pearl poem, the Pearl narrator, the dream, the dreamer, um, has a dream in which he meets his dead daughter, who was two. Um, he meets his dead toddler, who, whom he sees on the other side of a stream, and he can't cross to be with her. And they have the long conversation. And you'll mention that I uh, said at the end, his, um, uh, he, the dreamer at the end of the dream, can't stand it anymore, and he leaps across the stream uh, to join his daughter at last. And he wakes up. He's not permitted to cross the stream. As soon as he leaps out across the stream, he's ripped out of the dream. Um, I can't help but think of the Pearl poem again, just as I couldn't help but think of it when he first saw it, when, when Orwell first sees Psyche. Um, so too, I can't help but think of it here in, like, the other end of this, of that particular segment of the story. Um, uh, she can't cross the stream, but she's gonna try. It's become a death race. The stream in Pearl was, in fact, the stream of death. Um, but she is not left free. She is half trying to come near Psyche, half, like, trying to commit suicide. Uh, Dying, undeceived, disenchanted, reconciled to Psyche, right? Um, dying together seems to be her goal here. There is certainly, I think, an element of self-destruction. Um, uh, in her, like, she would rather be dead than have Psyche permanently taken away from her in any case. Um, so, yes, that, uh, that impulse towards self-destruction, I think, is, is, is certainly there. Um, but she is not left free to try to cross the stream. She is prevented. Um, and now the god appears to her. 
I love the description of the light. Um, one of the things that I love about this, if in a modern novel, like in a modern setting or with a modern narrator, we'd have all kinds of metaphors that we could use to describe light of this kind, right? Um, but I think Lewis has done a fascinating job of putting us back into the frame of reference and imagination of a person who has only ever seen sunlight, firelight, moonlight, and lightning, right? There, there is no other light, right? And so the idea of a pale, dazzling light without warmth or comfort, which is so bright that it shows even the smallest thing with a fierce distinctness, in those ways, it is just like lightning. But unlike lightning, it doesn't go away. It stood over me as still as a candle burning in a curtained and shuttered room. That's how steady it was. Um, he doesn't even use words like a beam of light that comes down, because that's not a thing. Uh, in uh, the idea of light forming a beam... Um, uh, that's that's not that's not a thing in Orwell's imagination. Um, but notice what she's associating it with. Oh, first of all, the phrase "lightning that endured." Lightning has actually been striking all over the place, right? So there's all of this terrifying, destructive, explosive lightning happening all over the place. And now there is this dazzling shaft of light, like lightning that endured, as if the world around her is being struck by some kind of continuous lightning. That's how terrifying it is. It, but it did not go away. It stood over, over me. She is illuminated by this light. And in the center of the light was something like a man. She can't figure its size. Um, she can't quite see where it's standing, though it has something to do with that boundary with the river. Right? And yes, all of that it... Maureen, yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, she doesn't call it him. She calls it it. Um, in the previous paragraph, that was clear, too. It had waked, right? But there it was a little bit more neutral because... Um, it's not necessarily like a monstrous and other it. It's just an indeterminate it. You could mistake it, at least, or it could potentially be an indeterminate it. Because, of course, the, she's talking about how like they didn't know what it was, right? This is more than an indeterminate it. This is an other it, right? She's not calling it him because... She is very conscious of the otherness of this creature. 
it's something like a man. It might have been huge. It might not have been huge. I don't know where it stood, either on the far side or on the water itself. But she knows two things about it. She knows that it's standing at the boundary and barring her way. She's not left free to cross or to try to cross. And she knows that its face is far above her. Um... The non-giganticness of it is, I think, interesting and I think important. Important because she has the unquestionable sense of, like, there's no question, she's not looking this thing in the eyes, right? She knows that it is above her. She knows this thing is greater than her, but it is not merely monstrous. At the same time, there is this clear perception that she has of likeness. It is like a man. It didn't have the shape of a giant. Right? She can't really tell. So it is simultaneously both near and far, both uh, similar, both like and other. Right? And both of those two things powerfully. I think. Um, yes, it's something beyond the concept of physical size, Maureen. There is this sense of, like, as if she is scrambling to describe something, an awareness she have of something that is beyond mere dimensions, right? There's a kind of, a different kind of magnitude that she is perceiving in this creature. Um, which has nothing to do with height, right? Or even bulk or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Though this light stood motionless, my glimpse of the face was as swift as a true flash of lightning. I could not bear it for longer. Not my eyes only, but my heart and blood and very brain were too weak for that. A monster the shadow root that I and Oglome had imagined, would have subdued me less than the beauty this face wore. And I think anger, what men call anger, would have been more supportable than the passionless and measureless rejection with which it looked upon me. Though my body crouched where I could almost have touched his feet, his eyes seemed to send me from him to an endless distance. He rejected, denied, answered, and, worst of all, he knew all I had thought, done, or been. A Greek verse says that even the gods cannot change the past. But is this true? He made it to be as if from the beginning I had known that Psyche's lover was a god, and as if all my doublings, fears, guessings, debatings, questionings of Bardia, questionings of the fox, all the rummage and business of it, had been trumped up foolery, dust blown in my own eyes by myself. You who read my book, judge. Was it so? Or at least, had it been so in the very past, before this god changed the past? And if they can indeed change the past, why do they never do so in mercy? Yes, Jocelyn, very good. 
Uh, Jocelyn is noting the shift to he here. Yes. Yes. Um, the shift, I think, uh, is, where does it come? His eyes, right there. Though my body crouched where I could almost have touched his feet, his eyes seem to send me. That's, I think, the first he. Um, the it that we get here, which it looked upon, with which it looked upon me. Um, that's, she doesn't call an it, um, she's still referring to the face, my glimpse of the face. Um, and I think the it is meant to refer to the face there. Um, yeah, really, really good. Um, yes. Uh, This passage is one of the reasons why I was saying we need to pause here. Um, does it look as if? Does Orwell herself think, ah, yes, look, the, the devouring wrath of the shadow brute has been revealed in this destruction of the valley? Yes, he has um, uh, turned to Psyche in uh, rage, unforgiving rage and savagery. Um, and lashed out at her. Does it look like that? Yeah, well, it certainly looks that way to Orwell, right? Um, yeah, but um, but that's not, in fact, her own experience when she's confronting it, right? She wishes, <laughs> she wishes she were seeing a monster. Um, she wishes that what she were experiencing were merely anger, passion, right? But she sees no monstrosity, no shadow brute. She experiences from him no anger, only a passionless and measureless rejection. Passionless. Fox isn't totally wrong about the divine being passionless and measureless rejection he's not angry he's disappointed very disappointed yes um yes yes um she <laughs> Man, the beginning of this. Though this light stood motionless, my glimpse of the face was as, slif, as swift as a true flash of lightning. He is surrounded by this radiance, which is as strong, as bright, as comfortless, and as terrifying as lightning. But she is the one who is as brief as lightning. Right? Um... Notice that really cool reversal there. Um, if lightning is as, you know, as, as many people, you know, I, you know, certainly many cultures like, you know, ancient cultures like the culture of Gloam saw lightning as a, a divine strike, a divine intervention, right? And hard to blame them for doing so. Not even sure they're wrong in all senses. Uh, but, uh, but in any case, that 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 perception of like that you know it's so sudden, so destructive, so terrifying that it seems like a brief, a mercifully brief 
right? Um, and mercifully, like, precise intervention uh, into the world, right? Um, by some kind of divine wrath. And yet, that whole schema gets reversed here, flipped on its head. Yes, the presence of the god is like lightning, lightning that endures. It's her intervention, right? Her encounter with that, that is as swift as a true flash of lightning. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, not my eyes only, but my heart and blood and very brain were too weak for that. She couldn't bear it any longer. Um, and then, yes, there are these the Well, I was going to say two things, but I'm not sure they're actually fully separate. What she saw in his face, in the one glimpse she got, the one glimpse she could dare, to, she could, you know, sustain of his face, she saw beauty that subdued her completely, more than fear would have done, fear of a monster or horror of something hideous. But she is subdued by this beauty, and she experiences that passionless and measureless rejection. Rejection that has nothing to do with getting carried away by emotions. Completely dispassionate and totally measureless. This infinite rejection with which it looks on her. And she feels herself to be sent an endless distance away from him. He rejected, denied, answered, and worst of all, he knew all that I had thought, done, or been. Rejected, denied, answered, and knew. And that's what's worse, that he knew all that she had thought, all that she had done, and all that she had been. His rejection of her is based on his knowledge of her. Um, and she feels that he has suddenly changed the past. He made it to be as if from the beginning I had known that Psyche's lover was a god. And as if all my doublings, fears, guessings, debatings, questionings and questionings, right, all the rummage and business of it, love that phrase, had been trumped up foolery, dust blown in my own eyes by myself. Yeah, isn't that good? Curious chance, I agree. So, we who read this book were to be her judges. She said that from the beginning. Was it so? She feels like he has changed the past. I think she, uh, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm ready to say, yes, it was so. I think that we saw that at all of those things at many times. She has always known. 
we saw it a bunch of ways. But yes, Eric, exactly. What she is not, what she can't accept is that he has changed her perception of the past. What he is giving her is clarity of vision. She is now seeing through all of the dust that she had been blowing into her own eyes. Remember, as we saw on a number of occasions, the inability to see was never her problem. The inability to believe was never her problem. She chose not to. She chose it again and again. Um, and so, yes. Trumped up foolery is a little harsh. Dust blown in her own eyes by herself. Yes. Yes, it had been so in the very past. Notice that final turn at the very end there. And if they can indeed change the past, why do they never do so in mercy? Right? Once again, we see her latching on to something. Right? On to, to anger at the gods. He now is making... He's retroactively made me guilty. If he has the power to change the past, he could have changed the past in mercy. He could have... He could have changed a you know bad thing that I did and made it into a good thing instead he's choosing to take good things that I did and made making them into bad things um yeah Emily I th I think she is seeing the truth but yes I think that what we're seeing even this concept of changing the past is an expression of her resistance to that truth she doesn't want to accept it she doesn't want to believe it. I think she sees it. I think she sees it clearly. She can read it in his rejection. He knows and she knows what she has thought and what she has done and what she has been. But she doesn't want to see it. Um, and uh we can already see her that the first step is this idea that he somehow actually changed the past. Again, notice the deflection of blame, right? Um, he made it to be as if, right? And then the second step to be angry at him. If he has the power to change the past, why is he not doing so in mercy? See, he's awful. Um, He's awful and I'm the victim. Um, so yeah. Yeah, we see both the clarity with which she is being shown the truth, but her resistance to uh, accepting it, to believing it. Um, miniature spoiler. Remember this, we'll see this when we get to chapter 16, which we're totally doing before at the end of the evening tonight. Um, you will see her pitiful stumbling attempt to recount what happened to the fox um, 
her immediate recognition that she could not possibly tell the true story to anyone um, shows pretty clearly that she recognizes that um, she has much to be ashamed of in all that she has thought and done. So, you know, does she want to cling to the idea that the gods somehow changed it and retroactively made all of her thoughts and deeds um, horrible? Yes. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Argent Painbrush, I don't think um, she thinks he can change the past because she won't accept that that was true. She cannot accept, she refuses to accept that from the beginning she had known that Psyche's lover was a god. We've seen lots of evidence of that and seen her choosing not to believe that again and again. And we have seen many ways in which her questionings and fears and guessings were trumped up foolery and dust blown in her own eyes. Yeah. Um, so yes, in order to protect herself from that truth, the truth that she did know all along, that she had plenty of reason to believe, that she did believe, but she didn't want it to be because she wanted something else instead, because she wouldn't give Psyche up, because she insisted on having her own way and having trying to keep Psyche all to herself. Um, so what she sees... One thing that is interesting about it, she doesn't simply deny it. Like, she doesn't think the goddess is lying to her, right? It's like she can't deny entirely the truth of it. So her only, like, desperate, and she admits irrational recourse is to thinking that God has retroactively changed the past. Right. Um, but she doesn't just say, no, 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 that never was true. She admits that it was true. But, uh, but it wasn't true at the time. Right. It's only true now because he's made it as if it's true. Um, yeah. The thunder had ceased, I think, the moment the still light came. There was great silence when the gods spoke to me. And as there was no anger, what men call anger, in his face, so there was none in his voice. It was unmoved and sweet, like a bird singing on the branch above a hanged man. Now Psyche goes out in exile. Now she must hunger and thirst and tread hard roads. Those against whom I cannot fight must do their will upon her. You, woman, shall know yourself and your work. You also shall be Psyche. <laughs> you also shall be Psyche. Um, yeah, the I know, Morgan Lamster, isn't that an amazing line? Uh, you woman shall know yourself and your work. You also shall be Psyche. Um, 
It's funny, I see some of you uh, trying to figure out what actress could play Orwell in a film adaptation of this book. Um, I think that's a literally impossible question to answer, as I doubt any of you have ever seen a woman as ugly as Orwell is described <laughs> acting in a Hollywood film. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, okay, anyhow. It was unmoved and sweet like a bird singing on the branch above a hanged man. Um, okay. That image, let's talk about that image for a second. Um, Yeah, we don't know anything about the death of the man, right? Was it was the person executed? Did the person commit suicide? We don't know, right? Um, the juxtaposition is the um, the singing of the bird and the horrible tragedy of the swinging of the swinging corpse, right? just as a bird in such a situation would be unmoved the voice of the bird singing would be sweet as it's always sweet in its nature it's sweet and its sweetness continues because it it is unmoved it doesn't care I say doesn't care if we say that about a person, we're making a sort of accusation, right? It's a failure of compassion of some sort. But the bird isn't failing in compassion when it sings on the branch above a hanged man. It just doesn't notice, right? It doesn't register with the bird. Why should the bird care? Right? The bird has its reasons for singing, same as always. Um, remember this is the sweetness of that is being used as an image for the lack of anger in the voice of the God if the God were angry, passionate right passion means you are being swept up with emotion, right? God's not being swept up with emotion. It does not feel that way about Orwell. Measureless rejection? Yes. Anger? No. And the voice is sweet. There's a great silence and the sweet, passionless voice. And it speaks about Psyche. Not about her. Now Psyche goes out in exile. Now she must hunger and thirst and tread hard roads. Those against whom I cannot fight must do their will upon her. 
psyche has been driven out of the house of the god, of the land of the gods, been driven out of the immortal world and into the mortal world to experience mortal suffering, hunger, and thirst, and hard roads, a long journey in the mortal world. Those against whom I cannot fight must do their will upon her. Those against whom I cannot fight. Oh, careful there, Tomas. You're talking about divorce. I don't see the god talking about divorce. Exile, yes. I don't see divorce. Um. Yes. Um. <laughs> just a separation. Exactly. Yeah. Definitely a separation. Um. A separation of an almost infinite distance. Right? Um, those against whom I cannot fight must do their will upon her. What does that mean? I think we have to be careful here. Because I'm afraid there's only really one clear answer to that question. We don't know. We don't know who against whom the God cannot fight, who will be doing their will upon her. And what exactly that will be. We we don't know. The one thing that is clearly communicated to us here, however, is that what is not happening is that Psyche shall flee into exile with the wrath of the god of the mountain, her husband or her former husband or whatever, whichever it is, um, pursuing her. That is not what is going to happen. He speaks of some restriction upon him that prevents, that keeps him from preventing others from doing their will upon her. She's going to be the victim of the will of other people, of other things. We don't know what. People? Gods? We don't know. He cannot fight for her. He cannot protect her. Again, the one thing that that clearly said, we don't know why. We don't know against whom. Um, we don't know what their will is going to be. And we're not told any of those things. But we do know that he is not going to be persecuting her himself. Exactly. Psyche is no longer under his protection. That's what he is telling her. Because she has gone out in exile. And now, as a consequence, she must hunger and thirst. Again, notice, once again, this is not a curse. He's laying on her, right? I shall afflict her with hunger and thirst, right? Uh, no, this is just facts. That's what going out into exile looks like. Um, yes. Then he shifts. You, woman shall know yourself and your work. And that, of course, connects directly to what we've just seen. He just showed her the truth. He just showed her herself. Because she was aware that he saw it, right? That he knew it, right? All that I had thought, done, or been. 
you woman shall know yourself and your work. He just tried to show it to her and she just fended it off. He changed the past and is a jerk for doing so that way, right? Um, he's a, uh, he, he changed the past and he was mean about it, right? We already see those self-defensive walls going up. And he here makes a prediction. Notice again, I, I, the tenses here are important. Like the verbs and tenses are really important here. Psyche goes out in exile. Present tense. That is what is currently happening. Psyche goes out in exile. Like right over there. Now she must hunger and thirst and tread. Those against whom I cannot fight must do their will upon her. These things now must, they are now inescapable consequences of that fact. The fact of her exile. She is currently in exile. Breaking news. Current events. Right? That will have these inescapable consequences. Hunger, thirst, hard roads, others doing their will on her. Now, notice his shift. You woman shall know yourself and your work. Future tense. You shall. This will happen. This is a prediction. You shall know yourself and your work. Not you must. It's not a consequence, right? It's not present tense. It's future tense. You shall know yourself and your work. You also shall be psyche. And in context of his paragraph here, it seems clear that he is predicting her own exile as well. Psyche goes out in exile. You also shall be Psyche. And as we will see, that's exactly what Orwal expects. When is she going to be driven out into exile? When is she going to experience hunger and thirst and hard roads? Right? Surely that is what is coming to her. Because the doom has been spoken. But, and I would say, I would say that that meaning would be completely inescapable if we did not have the penultimate sentence. If he just said, Psyche goes out in exile, she must hunger and thirst, uh, others must do their will on her, you also shall be Psyche. Okay, there it is, right? But we do have that penultimate sentence. You, woman, shall know yourself and your work. You also shall be Psyche. And the implication, I think, is the implication that she will share the exile of Psyche is clearly there. But it adds another one. Which is that, like, because he makes these two parallel future statements. She shall do two things. She shall know herself and her work, and she shall be psyche. And the other implication, therefore, is that those two things are connected together. Right? Um, you know, what does it mean? Not quite certain. But... Um, but that seems that seems a big part of it. Um, perhaps overall we'll experience what she's put psyche through, Sarah. That's that is uh, um, 
that's a good way to interpret that, right? Um, we saw her abusing and victimizing Psyche. We saw her con constantly thinking of herself and not Psyche, right? Um, in knowing herself and her work, in coming to understand, is does is does that mean yeah she's going to experience the same thing? She's going to reap what she sh what she sowed there. Possibly, that seems very plausible. That seems very plausible. The voice and the light both ended together, as if one knife had cut them short. Then, in the silence, I heard again the noise of the weeping. I never heard weeping like that before or after, not from a child, nor a man wounded in the palm, nor a tortured man, nor a girl dragged off to slavery from a taken city. If you heard a woman, if you heard the woman you most hate in the world weep so, you would go to comfort her. You would fight your way through fire and spears to reach her. And I knew who wept and what had been done to her and who had done it. Oh. Oh, man. Oh. Um, I wasn't sure I was going to succeed in reading that last sentence. It is so awful. This is the first step down that road of knowing herself and her works. I knew who wept and what had been done to her and who had done it. The indefiniteness there, right? Does she? Is she? Because she could just be blaming the God, right? I knew what the God had done to her, and I knew that he, it was his fault, right? If we think back to page one of the novel, kind of sounds like sooner or later she's going to get there, right? But in this moment... I don't think that is exclusively what's in her mind here. Um, yeah. Um, the noise of the weeping. The noise of the weeping is going to be a motif from many chapters now. Um, pay close attention to any reference to the sound of weeping. That's going to be important for the next, you know, through, through, through the, the rest of book one. Um, uh, yes, I saw you guys um, referring to the knife. Yeah, Cal Elros was just anticipating what I was going to say. Um, how striking that metaphor is, or that simile, as if one knife had cut them short, right? Um, and we can't help, I think, but think of Orwell's knife, right? right? The knife with which she stabbed herself, the knife with which, uh, on which she made Psyche swear her vow, right? Um, there is a sense in which that knife did, in fact, cut short cut things short here, right? Um, cut off, because like, what is being what is being compared to, the thing that's being compared is the cutting off of the God's presence, right? Um, the, the separation, the departure, the 
cutting, uh, the cutting off the connection, severing of the connection between the divine and the human, the encounter that they were just having, right? The marriage that Psyche and the God had. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I certainly agree. I see you guys talking about... Um, so Emily was asking, at this point in the book, are we, the reader, still supposed to be judging the gods for what they did to her? She's asking us to, absolutely. But it should be real clear by now that it's not nearly so simple a matter, right? And again, I would emphasize that um, the fact that it is not a simple matter to judge is a testimony to the remarkable honesty and vulnerability of Orwell, of geriatric Orwell, geriatric Orwell's narration, right? In fact, so honest, so much evidence has she given against herself, both like knowingly and unknowingly, that it makes me begin to wonder something. Uh, it makes me begin to wonder if perhaps it's still true for geriatric Orwell that she knows the truth about the gut. She just doesn't want to let herself believe it. Is she still throwing up this, you know, stirring up the same dust into her own eyes when she's, you know, 80 as she was here? Um, Yeah. Curious chance. I don't know that the weeping is necessarily worse now than before the god appeared. In fact, I would say probably no. The one description we got of it was um, uh, the sound of weeping. I think my heart broke then. Uh, my heart did not beat till they were over. So the fact of the heart breakingness of the weep, I mean, it's, but it doesn't get described, nor does she like register the experience because she's too overwhelmed by the encounter with the divine, right? But as soon as the divine goes, when she is in fact left on this side of the gulf, when now the world of the divine and the world of the mortal have been pulled apart completely, cut off as with a knife, now all that's left is the sound of the weeping. Remember, she and Psyche are now on the same side. She has, in a sense, gotten what she wanted. She was being divided by this gulf from Psyche because Psyche was on the divine side and she was on the human side. Now both of them are on the human side. The god has been removed, leaving both Orwell and Psyche. And this is her experience of that. Now that she can focus on the human thing, this is all, this is what she thinks and feels and experiences. Not exactly the triumph she was originally trying to convince herself of. Uh, these are her thoughts on her way back home at the very end of the chapter. I looked on the things about me with a new eye. Now that I'd proved for certain that the gods are and that they hated me, 
It seemed that I had nothing to do but wait for my punishment. I wondered on what dangerous edge the horse would slip and fling us down a few hundred feet into a gully, or what tree would drop a branch on my neck as we rode under it, or whether my wound would corrupt and I should die that way. Often, remembering that Often, remembering that it is sometimes the god's way to turn us into beasts, I put my hand under my veil to see if I could feel cat's fur or dog's muzzle or hog's tusks beginning to grow there. Yet with it all, I was not afraid. Nevertheless, it is a strange yet somehow a quiet and steady thing to look round on earth and grass and the sky and say in one's heart to each, You are all my enemies now. None of you will ever do me good again. I see now only executioners. Remember her experience of the earth and grass and sky on her first ride up? Why should my heart not dance? Right? And now she looks upon them perceiving infinite rejection. Um, I see now only executioners. But I thought it most likely those words, you also shall be psyche, meant that if she went into exile and wandering, I must do the same. And this, I had thought before, might very easily come about if the men of Gloam had no will to be ruled by a woman. But the god had been wide of the mark. So then they don't know all things? If he thought he could grieve me most by making my punishment the same as Psyche's. If I could have borne hers as well as my own. But next best was to share. And with this I felt a sort of hard and cheerless strength rising in me. I would make a good beggar woman. I was ugly, and Bardia had taught me how to fight. Sphinx, that is really interesting. The parallel to the enmity with the, the alienation from the ground um, uh, that we get in Genesis 3. Yeah, that is interesting. Morgul, yes. The, the, the martyr complex again. There is a kind of comfort. Remember, a quiet and steady thing. Um, in thinking that the gods are and that they hate her. That she is the victim here. By thinking about her own punishment, the gods are going to kill her. The gods are going to transform her into a beast. The whole world has become her enemy now. She's going to be cast out of gloam and become a beggar woman and suffer in want and hunger and danger for the rest of her life. That is... Um, that is... comforting in its way. And why is it comforting? Because it's more and more dust blown in her own eyes. Right? That is to say, it keeps her... Back to that horrible sentence. I knew who wept, and what had been done to her, and who had done it. There are two interpretations of that sentence. One is so horrible that it's hard to bear. The other is an active comfort. The other is a strength. I knew that Psyche wept, and I knew what the god had done to her, and that it was all his fault. That will give you strength. You can find refuge in that. That anger. That anger that we saw from page one of the book. Right? The other? I knew who wept. 
and what I had done to her and that it was my fault is almost impossible to bear. And yet, you woman shall know yourself and your work, the God says. Um, so her, her new attitude, we can see her defenses being built again. And so that I may defiantly uh, fulfill my word. Oh, look, it's chapter 16. We'll just start it. The fox says, do you mean, child, you never came to speech with her at all? So I mean, the, the, remember, she's trying to tell the fox, but as soon as she's, try, she's there with the fox, she's like, man, I can't admit anything I did. Right? Like, I can't tell him. I can't tell him what I was urging her to do. I can't tell him how I forced her to do it. I can't tell him what happened and what I saw. Right? And I sure can't tell him about how it was all my fault. Um, and so, as she's stumbling around, uh, he asks, Do you mean, child, you never came to speech with her at all? said the fox, looking very haggard. Yes, I said. We did talk a little. Earlier. Child, what is wrong? Was there a quarrel? What passed between you? This was harder to answer. In the end, when he questioned me closely, I told him about my plan of the lamp. Daughter, daughter, cried the fox. What demon put such a device in your thoughts? What did you hope to do? Would not the villain by her side, he, a hunted man and an outlaw, be certain to wake? And what would he do then but snatch her up and drag her away to some other lair? Unless he stabbed her to the heart for fear she'd betray him to his pursuers. Why, the light alone would convince him she'd betrayed him already. How if it were a wound that made her weep? Oh, if you'd, if you'd only taken counsel. Um, one of the things that is so striking about this passage, notice how confident the fox is in his, is in his interpretation, right? He knows exactly what's possible and what's not possible. He's had no doubt, right? Remember, it needed no Oedipus to figure out what was going on with Psyche. Um, he has known very confidently what the situation must, in fact, be, right? But notice how all of this sounds now, right? After what actually happened, after what Orwell actually experienced. Um... The fox's confident interpretation is so laughably inadequate, right? But, side note, that's not the fox's fault. Apart from the fact that, and I don't just mean that the fox is, you know, um, sort of blinded by his worldview here. What I mean is he's been given quite inadequate data. She didn't tell him entirely the truth about things the first time when she came down. Um, now she's told him only a tiny fraction of what actually happened. And he has no idea that his interpretation um, wildly does not fit the case, right? Um, so again, in my mind, 
yes, on the one hand, we do have this sort of illustration of the of the limitations of the Fox's worldview, but that seems to me a minor element of what's happening here. The most important element is to see what it reveals to us about Orwell's perspective, right? How far, again, uh, is it true that she actually knew that it was the God all along? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Did she ever have this perspective? No. No. She never even thought of it. And she can't even hold it in her head now. Her reaction to this, to this comment, is she's like amazed at herself. Like that it never occurred to her, that it never occurred to her that this is what might happen. Like that it might be a really bad idea to reveal, you know, her uh, bedroom partner with the lamp for fear that it would turn out to be a, a, a mountainy man or outlaw who would react just like the fox described here. That never crossed her mind because she never thought it was actually possible. Right. She didn't believe that. Not even a little bit. And she immediately after this comes to realize that. It just dramatizes not only how far her current knowledge and her current experience is from the fox. There's a gulf that's opened up between her and the fox as a result of the experience she's just had on the mountaintop. He can't possibly understand what she's gone through what she saw, what happened. Um, she and the fox are now on two different sides of the stream, right? But more, it shows us more and more clearly, yeah, she did know all the way along. She never shared this perspective. She never really shared Bardia's perspective either. Not fully, not really, not like they do. Um, okay. Um, let's. Let's stop there. Just because I'm stubborn doesn't mean I want to be ridiculously stubborn. Um, next time, are you prepared for this assignment? This is rash, but we're going to move a little faster now. We're through the super intense chapters in the middle. Um, I, there are a number of things that I want to make sure that we note about Orwell's story. We didn't quite get to the veiling, though. Almost, but not quite. We're like one or two slides short of it. Yep, two slides short of it. Oh, well, it's okay. Um, read through chapter 19. Read through chapter 19. So read three chapters, 16, 17, no, yeah, four. Heck, keep going, right? Um, we're going to get through the end of book one more quickly here. Um, so yeah, do do it do at least 18. Do at least 18 for next week. Um, and um, yeah, let, let, let's say 18. Let's be a little bit more concerned. 19 is a little, 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 little reckless. Let's go at least through 18. 16, 17, and 18 for next time. Because um, uh, there will be a bunch of things to observe, though not the really deep and heartrending passages. Um, and then uh, we'll continue on that pace for about another week, and then we'll <laughs> book two. Woof! And I agree, we need to save a month for chapter 24. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, there's a good chance we'll be done with this by May. <laughs> but it's okay. I don't grudge it. 
I will say, as I said before, I am so grateful for this opportunity to discuss this book with y'all. Uh, it's been uh, it's been really wonderful. All right, thanks, folks. I will see you guys next next week. So I, I should be around next week. I don't know of any conflict next week. Um, I'll be away uh, Christmas week, the week after that. But I'll be I'll be here next week. All right. Uh, see you guys soon. Bye now.